This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. You're listening to Quick to Listen, the Christianity Today podcast where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes and set aside time to explore the reality behind a major cultural event. I am Caitlin Beatty, the print managing editor of Christianity Today, and I am delighted to be joined by my co-host Morgan. Hey, Morgan. Hey, Caitlin. It's good to see you after all our travels over the weekend. <laughs> good to see you, too. How was New York? I had a great time. Did you have a good time in your little lake house as well? It was awesome. I didn't think about work once. Mission accomplished. <laughs> so, Caitlin, today our guest is Eric Johnson, and he is a professor of pastoral care at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. One of his favorite classes to teach is Biblical and Theological Foundations for Counseling. He is also the author of Foundations for Soul Care, a Christian psychology proposal. And so I bet this is going to intrigue all of our listeners about what exactly <laughs> what could we be talking about. Hi, Eric. Hey there. How you doing? Good. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Yeah, really happy to be on. Well, some of our listeners might have seen an interesting Washington Post piece that was published last week, written by a psychiatrist and professor of clinical psychology, not a Christian, not anybody with a religious background who says, based on his own work in the field, that demonic possession is real and that it's actually a helpful category for diagnosis. The psychiatrist's name is Richard Gallagher. He says he has witnessed individuals do things like voice statements of contempt for religion out of the blue speak in various foreign languages previously unknown to them, exhibit enormous strength. He says, as a consulting doctor, I think I have seen more cases of possession than any other physician in the world. So I first learned about this story because I saw a lot of Christians sharing the story last week kind of as proof that the spiritual dimension is real. Naturally, many others have expressed skepticism about the reality of demons and spiritual beings. So we wanted to use this story in the Washington Post to talk about the intersection of Christian faith and psychology, and and maybe to ask whether Christians have abandoned or forgotten a spiritual framework for understanding the human person in order to be kind of accepted by the, by the broader culture and not to seem weird. <laughs> so Eric is going to help us uh, think about these this intersection of faith and psychology. Before we get into our gut check, I want to highlight that Quick to Listen is made possible by subscribers of Christianity Today magazine. The magazine offers redemptive yet honest coverage of the people, events, and ideas shaping the culture. And as a subscriber, each year you will get 10 award-winning print issues, tablet and PDF versions of each issue, full access to ChristianityToday.com, online archives dating back to 1956. And as, as our listeners know, we like to offer our regular listeners of Quick to Listen a special deal. This is a year-long subscription to CT for our lowest rate available 10 dollars. So head over to orderct.com slash quick to listen. That's orderct.com slash quick to listen. All right, let's do our gut check. When you heard about this story in the Washington Post, Eric, what was your 
initial reaction or thoughts, specifically given your studies in psychology and your own clinical or pastoral care work? Yeah, so I, I, I got a copy of the, the article sent to me by a student who was curious, like what I thought of it. And, and uh, you know, my, my read was it was a very sober and thoughtful account of somebody who had worked substantially with uh, s- some folks in the Roman Catholic Church and um, I uh, it, it it confirmed you know the other kinds of things that I've read uh, uh, in this area over the years I tried to be open to what the Bible teaches on these kinds of things and so have kind of you know been you know lo- read read material uh, related to this but haven't had much of my own experience with it so I I, I thought it was very thoughtful. What about you, Morgan? What was your reaction, initial reaction? I was intrigued. <laughs> yes, a, a Washington Post piece <laughs> with the title, I have witnessed demonic possession is like the definition of clickbait. Correct. Then I scrolled to the bottom and I realized that the guy is coming out with a book. <laughs> All right. I would be interested in reading this. No, but Yeah, there was definitely a big part of me that was like, this is fascinating. Yeah, my gut check was, I think it makes sense just from a purely clinical perspective that there are phenomena in the world that the only explanation for them is kind of a spiritual or otherworldly reality. At the same time, I'm I'm concerned about the, the God of the gaps possibility that when we encounter phenomena in the world that we can't explain, we attribute it to God. But what happens 200 years from now when we actually have some kind of scientific Mm. explanation for Mm. why people are talking in various foreign languages unknown to them. Now, a scientific explanation for that is very hard to imagine, but who knows where we'll be in 200 years. So I wanted to start with a, with a first question for you, Eric, and you, you told me before our show, you have not directly encountered a case of demonic possession. Possession, but you do believe it's real. As a psychologist, how do you discern between something like, you know, demonic possession, spiritual oppression, and something like depression or Tourette syndrome or something that we have kind of a biological or psychological explanation for? How are these two things distinct? And then how do you discern the difference between the two? Well, you know, not having experience, I have to go on the basis of those folks who do have this kind of experience. And so it's one of the reasons I've I've tried to read some material on this. There's a fascinating book that was written by a missionary in China in the late 1800s, John Nevius, who uh, experienced some some folks that were possessed, shaman, you know, uh, in that kind of animistic culture. And he sent uh, a letter out to uh, letters out to other missionaries in China at that time and gathered stories on demon possession. And it's actually a book you can, we have in our library. I think it was published and. Uh, in the late 1800s called Demon Possession and Allied Phenomena. And uh, it describes stuff very similar to what Dr. Gallagher is talking about. And and then more recently, there's folks who have been in other third world cultures in our day that have written about this, documented it. So, you know, the, my understanding of the distinction is, is that it's manifest itself in ways that are similar to what the Bible describes, that there is a, a kind of an alien sounding sort of voice that is very hostile to God. And it's speaking out 
uh, in a way that's different than the person's own self-awareness, their own sense of their own selfhood. So that's different than schizophrenia. That's different than what used to be called multiple personality. It's now called dissociative identity disorder. It's this malevolent, very kind of hostile to, to Christ sort of person that's coming out. And actually, I got a friend, uh, one of my colleagues here, professor of church history, uh, Michael Haken, who uh, tells in class a story when he uh, witnessed uh, in, in, in Canada uh, when he was a younger fellow. He got called into a pastoral care emergency, and it was somebody who spoke in a very different, bizarre-sounding voice that was just not like what the person uh, that a person with schizophrenia or dissociative identity disorder would would speak like. So, hmm. so there there's a different phenomenon observed between the, these kind of vocal expressions and schizophrenia because that that's kind of the common Western Christian or just mainstream Western response to something like demonic possessions. Oh, we have a name for that, a clinical name for that, and that's schizophrenia. We can diagnose it and treat it. Yeah, I think I think this is what makes Gallagher's um, you know contribution interesting. But but I have to say, similar to other folks that have worked in this area, is that when you have experience with people with schizophrenia and dissociative identity disorder and somebody that's demon possessed, they would say, oh yeah. You know the difference. It's quite clear if you're there. Mm. I think, you know, we, we need to be skeptical. There's This is an area where there's a lot of uh, charlatans and, and, and goofy stuff, you know. And it, when I when I first saw the article, I thought, oh, is this National Enquirer? And I, I too, was surprised that, you know, it was from Washington Post. But there there is a legitimate documented literature on this, so, uh, thoughtful people that have contributed to it. And they, I think, to some extent, where well, we, we have to balance skepticism with an openness to the possibility that there are uh, aspects of the supernatural in the world. And, and of course, you know, we're not even talking about the Bible yet. The Bible suggests that there are such things. Uh, and, and so that, that for the Christian, of course, we're going to be open to that. Do you remember in any of your education about mental health also having time to talk about exorcisms or about demons? No, you know, it, uh, my, my PhD was at Michigan State, and, you know, it was a very secular school at the, uh, you know, has been for many decades. So uh, it w- wouldn't have been on the radar. Um, and, you know, I think, I think Christians uh, really vary in terms of their background training. Certain Christian traditions uh, like Pentecostals and Charismatics tend to be more open to this as a reality. And I think more uh, some other, you know, more mainline approaches, of course, are going to be more, uh, you know, s- skeptical to the point of uh, disbelief uh, in such things. And so I, uh, you know, I've kind of had to gather my own literature uh, in in my reading and then just talking with folks about it. And, and uh, along the way, it's a pretty, you know, as Dr. Gallagher suggests, in the West, it seems to be a pretty rare phenomenon, but it's out there. And uh, one one book that I that uh, impacted my interpretation of this, I think, is really fascinating. Is a book by a, a Dutch theologian. He's uh, that would live mid-century, named Hendrikus Burkhoff, and he wrote a book called Christ: The Meaning of History, where he suggests that uh, you know the activity of demons was you know is, was around the world but when the gospel came when Christ came and then he sent his spirit to the church that as the gospel 
uh, entered into cultures. There was a sort of exorcism of of spiritual power, uh, uh, demonic power in these in these various subcultures around Europe and, and wherever the gospel uh, came. So that in some sense, the the uh, demonic forces were 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 beaten back, as it were, and and so that you don't you don't find as much demonic activity in the West. But then where where the gospel hasn't taken over a culture, there still is a fair amount of demonic activity. And so when you go to Asia, Africa, Central America, there's all kinds of accounts by missionaries and, and uh, Christians that there are still a fair amount, there is still a fair amount of demonic activity. And, you know, it's, it fits with the facts. So so in his account, it, I mean, I don't mean this to sound silly, but like the demons decided to huddle in one country? <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, we're we're dealing with a lot of mystery here. We have to, we, you know, we, obviously, we, you know, we we have to try and make sense of what what it is that we see. And I think, you know, when we, you know, why isn't there more demonic activity in the West? So what what he's saying is that there are spiritual forces that are um, that are ex- exerted simply by the presence of the gospel taking over a culture as it were and uh somehow you know i'm you know mysteriously uh in some way binding the manifestation of those powers in in uh, in certain cultures uh i don't know all i know is you know it does seem to fit the facts and so i'm open to that as some sort of a some sort of a way of making sense. I mean, you know, know, when you think about a demon, obviously this isn't something that we can put in a test tube and measure. So we're dealing with phenomena that do transcend the natural order by definition. Demons are supernatural beings. And so I think, you know, we've got to do the best we can to make sense of that reality. I was just wondering about the idea of mental health to begin with, and then when this became something that was widely acknowledged and studied and maybe you can give us a little bit of the history and context of how that developed. Well, there's there's always been a tradition at least in the West that there are physical problems that can happen to the body that affect the mind. And so you go back to Hippocrates who uh who documents mental illness back uh in the uh, in the Greek era, you know, of our of western culture. And that tradition through a, a Roman physician, Galen, uh, who also documented the occurrence of mental illness, which he traced to physical conditions, was actually um, ve- uh, appreciated throughout the Middle Ages. And so the most learned people throughout the Middle Ages did have a, a recognition that there are both spiritual problems and uh, physical problems that can contribute to uh, abnormalities in human life. And uh, one of the most fascinating books in the modern era, early modern era, is a book on melancholy by a a fellow named Burton. I'm blanking on his first name, but it's a pretty well-known book in the area, uh, written, published in the late 1600s, but it's like a three-volume work on melancholy. And he tries to gather together all the Western uh, wisdom uh, over the centuries that he could find that helped to under uh, helped uh, describe this condition of what we would now call depression, and it's quite by it, for its time it's quite sophisticated. He talks about biological causality, which was which was assumed that there was an imbalance of at the time what was called what was uh, considered humors of. Uh, uh, 
bodily fluids that are out of balance. Too much black bile would give a person depression. And this was this goes back to Hippocrates and Galen, but but he certainly embraced that, that there's something physical wrong with, uh, with people when they have severe depression. But he also acknowledged that uh, what we would call trauma in childhood and in life could contribute to such things and just having a real sad life over a long period of time. So by, you know, for its time, and, you know, from our standpoint, looking back to it, it, it's very prescient in terms of understanding that there's a lot of factors. But, but he also, as a, as a, as some kind of a theist, if, if not a Christian, he may have been a Christian. I can't remember, but, uh, he was certainly open to the work of God and to the work of, of, uh, uh demonic forces. And so it, it, it is what I would consider a very comprehensive model back in the late 1600s and and it wasn't you know it wasn't uh, it wasn't an aberrant book it was considered a very respectable uh contribution to this uh this field. Uh, similarly, uh, around that time, uh, Richard Baxter, one of the great Puritan pastors, uh, wrote a, a wonderful uh, sermon for two pastors about what, how to how to care for people who have severe uh, melancholy. And um, he, he, you know, most of it is scriptural admonitions to help people. You know, focus on what God has done in Christ and so on. But at a certain point, he he, he kind of turns to these pastors. And he said, "Now we're going to come across people who have lost their wit with with severe melancholy." And he and then he says, "You need to find a physician to work with." Uh, and and then he has two pages in this in this uh, treatise, two pages of soups and broths that you ought to try in order to help balance the bodily right on. imbalance, you know. And so while they didn't understand the precise neurological and physiological mechanisms, they they knew that there was more than spiritual and psychological uh, factors at work. But there's so physical. So that that's, uh, you know, I think as we think about these issues in our day, we can be extremely grateful for the research on on the, the role of the brain and neuro, neurological function and, and how that contributes. But I think the goal for, from a Christian standpoint is to develop a holistic, comprehensive framework that has, in my thinking, I wrote on this in Foundations for Soul Care, four dimensions and the, 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 so if you could think of a, of kind of a hierarchical model, the lowest model being the biological, the second one being the psychological and the social, because they are so interactive, I just call it the psychosocial. And then I like to separate out the ethical, which has its own kind of uh, dynamics uh, re- relating to when we do wrong and we feel guilt and shame about that. And then the uh, the highest level being the spiritual. And while we can separate those out too markedly, I don't want to separate them too markedly. I want because there's so much interaction, and I think in our understanding now of how these work uh, work together in the human body soul, because we're so uh, our bodies and souls are so interwoven that it's hard to separate them out too too strictly. But but we can, I think, make discriminations between these uh, various levels. And then I think when we're working with people, my my kind of adage is. And what I teach my students is we work at the highest levels possible, but the lowest level necessary. 
Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. if we can intervene at the spiritual level, let's do so. And most, most struggles, mild to moderate depression and anxiety, you know, there's a lot of scriptural encouragement and, and things that we can work with and pastoral care and, and Christian counseling to help people. But we're going to often, we're, you know, there's a percentage of people, maybe, maybe as much as a third of folks at, to half who have more substantial damage, biological and as a result of their families of origin and where they're brains have have been wired in, in in ways that are counterproductive and not according to God's design plan where we have to look at things like their developmental stories and and try and help them to reinterpret their narratives in in a way that uh, that is centered more in God and helps them to get freed from some of the, the the lies that they grew up with or mistreatment that they were exposed to and then also that's going to affect the brain and sometimes we're going to have to intervene with medication you know, so all of this, I think, it, it, it contributes to a holistic model according to the way God made us. That's a really helpful model. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. We, we hear more and more these days about the reality of mental health and mental illness among evangelicals. And there's kind of been a correction to over-spiritualizing or just trying to treat depression and anxiety with, you know, spiritual models. And at the same time, we risk overcorrecting and forgetting that we are spiritual beings as well as physical and psychological and social beings, and that we have many resources at our disposal to address um, the spirit as well as the body and the mind. Yeah, it's so complicated. It's 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 daunting for anybody who's interested in this area. And I, you know, it's I think it's especially uh, daunting for folks, you know, just lay folks out there who are like, how do I think about this? I, I believe the Bible's true, but it's also clear, you know, we've all had a family member or somebody who's had some kind of a crisis or uh, and so we know that there's more to it than than just a, a, a Bible platitude. And so I, I, you know, it's some some problems in life are extremely complicated. And I think we, you know, we just have to do the best we can to make sense of all the data at our disposal, which includes biblical revelation as well as uh, scientific research. You know, Eric, and you've been talking about the importance of us keeping an open mind while also being skeptical. Who is this we charge to? It doesn't apply to lay people. It doesn't apply to clergy, to seminarians. Do we all get to kind of make this judgment call? Well, boy, uh, that's, uh, you know, I think we, we because we're finite beings, we have to rely on uh, the judgment of others as a part of being a mature person. I what you know, I remember, you know, one of Augustine's insights was uh, the search for wisdom entails a recognition. I don't have much. And, and that means that we, you know, we look to, to wise people for guidance. And that's a, that's a, that's a, a mark of, of wisdom to be able to, to do that. So, 
we're all kind of in the same boat then. I think based on our calling, I think it's a matter of calling. I'm call- As a psychologist, I'm called to wade into this uh, world more so than most pastors and uh, more so than uh, lay people, of course. But, but then I, I consider pastors to be particularly important uh, people in the, in the kingdom of God. You know, I, I think of the, you know, kind of God's mental health system begins in the local church because most people go to their pastors for help, you know, and, and I like the thought of pastors being the first pe- people that, uh, that the typical Christian goes to consult with and, you know, to help me, I'm, I'm having this struggle, help me. And I, and I think of the, you know, uh, the ideal pastor being somebody like a Richard Baxter, who basically is informed by, you know, biblical counseling, by understanding the role of the Bible and how it can minister to the needs of God's people, but then also being open to referring to a physician in, in Baxter's day. And I would add to that, you know, a skilled uh, therapist that, uh, that, that ideally is just as God-centered as the pastor is and can refer when, when the, the pastor recognizes this person has problems that are beyond my training and my expertise. And I would, I think I use the figure, you know, maybe as many as a third of, of folks in a, in a typical church may have problems that are typically, um, they're going to be a more demanding than is the normal training of a, a third. Of a yeah, I, I That's would. That's a lot would, of people. It's a lot of people. And, and, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I'm a psychologist. I, I, uh, I, I believe in, uh, you know, my own project is, is termed Christian psychology, developing a Christian approach to the field of psychology. As I, as I, uh, you know, as you think about the rates of, uh, significant disorders, uh, out there, I think it, it, you know, when you add up all the folks that, that have some level of trouble, uh, I come again and again to somewhere between 25 to 40 percent, uh, maybe as high as 50, depending on what you're looking at and just how severe the, the situation is. That still means that uh, the majority of folks are, are are having, you know, either they don't have very many struggles at all or their struggles are are episodic, periodic. So they might have a, you know, a difficulty with a teenager, you know, maybe marital conflict. And so they get, they, they go to a counselor, they go to their pastor for some, for some spiritual counsel. And that may be sufficient, but, um, you know, there's a 15, 20% of people at any given time struggling with depression, 15% uh, anxiety. And there's, there's often overlap with those two, 5% of folks who have, um, a personality disorder uh, at any given time, diagnosable, and and of course, there's all of these have a, a continuum, and so yeah, when I when I think about it, I think you know you look at a church of a thousand people, there's going to be a lot of people who are in need of of uh, some uh, some significant help over the course of their lifetime. Which is a good reminder that I mean, if if that many people in any given congregation are affected by some kind of psychological malady or trouble, then it it is incumbent upon pastors to both offer the solid spiritual um, healing and resources, as well as being open to refer to people who have an expertise in, you know, in therapy, in in um, drug treatment that pastors wouldn't necessarily have. Yes, yes. One of the 
problems that's been created in the modern era is a fragmentation of knowledge into these various specializations. And I suppose that's unavoidable because now there's so much knowledge out there in our, in our day. But what I think is really important for Christians to appreciate it. God's, God's got it all in one you know mind, right? He's the author of all knowledge. And so in him, it's one thing. And so we have to figure out how to collaborate as a Christian community and work together, pastors, counselors, psychiatrists, physicians, recognizing we all have something to, that we can bring with us into this, into this uh, uh, he, uh, healing uh, framework within, the, within a, a Christian context. And, uh, and uh, you know, I think that, that we are living in a time when there's a greater awareness of the complexity here and a willingness to collaborate, you know, uh, at least, at least in, in most quarters. I think there's, a, there's always going to be people, you know, they're doing some turf protection, but... Uh, I think the heart of God is to unity and working together, collaborating, and learning how to how to refer as best as uh, as we can. Well, that's a good note to end on. Thank you for your insights, Eric, and for drawing on the work that you've done in this area for several years. And I know that your Foundations for Soul Care is over 700 pages long. So if our readers want uh, an in-depth reading on these topics, they can check out your book, Foundations for Soul Care. So we are going to wrap up. Thank you for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. If there are specific passages of scripture, insights that you have, personal stories, we'd love to hear those. You can share those with us on Twitter at CT Podcasts or on Facebook at facebook.com slash ct podcast now it's time for the segment of the show we're calling precious moments as our listeners know this is the time when we go around and shout out one person place thing object song that's giving us joy this week and then you can also tell people where they can find you or follow you online so we'd love to hear your precious moment eric yeah, well, Fourth of July was a, was really cool because we uh, cel- my wife and I celebrated that at the the new home of our daughter and son in law and grandson, and uh, that it was uh, it was just great. It was great to be there in their their new place and uh, just to kind of hang out and have some brats. And brats are always a nice way to celebrate our country's independence. <laughs> That's right, for sure. Do you have a website or are you on Twitter? I am on Twitter, uh, Dr. E.L. Johnson. Yeah, I'm not as active as I'd like to be, but I I, I try and throw something out there once in a while. (laughs) What is your precious moment, Morgan? As of last week or two weeks ago, the public pools in Chicago are open for the summer. So they wait until school gets out. And then when school gets out, they have lifeguards to staff all the outdoor public pools and they're free. And the one close to my house has a water slide. (laughs) which is cool you're specifically really excited about the water slide it's all right it could be more exciting to be honest but i'm mostly (laughs) just excited i love i love free outdoor activities during the summer and i literally have three pools within a mile maybe four of my house so that's great where can we find you online i'm on twitter at m-e-p-a-y-n-l So my precious moment this week is something anticipatory. I will be hosting my brother, Tyler, and his fiance this weekend for a Chicago 
visit. It's been several years since my brother has visited me here, but we got an Airbnb place in the city and we're going to do an architectural boat tour. My brother wants to go to the Lego store, even though he's 27. (laughs) Um, So I think it'll just be a fun, relaxing weekend with them. And you can find me on Twitter at Caitlin Beatty. And that is it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This show is produced by Richard Clark and Cray Allred. We also want to give special thanks to Kate Shellnut. If you like what we're doing here at Quick to Listen, you can subscribe to our show on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And if you like the show, please make sure to rate and review us on iTunes. That helps us a lot. See you next week. This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.